The following message comes to you from the pulpit of Zion Primitive Baptist Church in Zion, Alabama. For more information, please visit us online at zionpbc.com. This morning, in Mark chapter 14, we've come down to verse 22. And verse 22 gives us the short, sweet little account of what we call the Lord's Supper, the communion service. We've just had the great rich blessing of being able to participate in that service just two or three weeks ago. But we're going to go back this morning and maybe look at it and talk about it. You know, we only ever preach on it when we're doing the service. It seems like that's my experience, at least, as a preacher. This morning, I'm looking forward to examining this, this sweet ceremony, this sweet ordinance of the church, and, and understanding what it truly means. Verse 22, Mark chapter 14, And as they did eat, Jesus took bread and blessed and brake it, and gave to them and said, Take, eat, this is my body. And he took the cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, and they all drank of it. And he said unto them, This is my blood of the New Testament, which is shed for many. Verily I say unto you, I will drink no more of the fruit of the vine until that day that I drink it new in the kingdom of God. And when they had sung in hymn, they went out into the Mount of Olives. Now, before we go any further, let me point something out to you that's very important. What I have just read to you is the very first New Testament church service. Up to this point, it's been law service. Up to this point, he has been fulfilling both the, the meat and the, and the ceremonial part of the law to a jot and to a tittle. And that's what they've done. We're going to see that, Lord willing, as we continue to go through this. They have just participated in, in completing the Passover. And by the way, it was the last Passover. Isn't that glorious? It was the last Passover service. Now, there have been many observed since then, but this was the last one recognized by God under that Old Testament service. And at the end of that, for the first time, see, up to this point, Jesus hadn't been preaching anything new. He's been telling them the same old story that God told them from the beginning of, of, the, of the creation, from the time when Adam ate of the fruit, and, and as, he, as he is there chastising Adam, he's telling Adam, uh, and, and Eve what they've done wrong and he says to the serpent hey there's something better coming it, it, you know there's going to be enmity between your seed and her seed but uh, you'll bruise his heel but he will bruise your head this is what's been preached from the beginning of time Jesus didn't have anything new he didn't change anything in the law he simply brought it to the proper focus but here he institutes something new We'll come back to that, Lord willing, but one of the reasons that I believe we should keep doing things like we're doing them here is because when we look at the first church service that they had, the first New Testament service, we're doing it the way they did it. I know we're not getting it all right. I don't mean that. I'm not saying that in pride. I'm just saying trying to follow that, that first century church. This is the first New Testament church service. Now, as I said, it's the end of the Passover. It's the beginning of something new. For thousands of years, the Jewish format for worship had been established with very few modifications. Some of them that had been modified weren't authorized by God. So now Jesus 
is, is instituting a commemoration service that is to be recognized and participated in by the church until he comes back. What possibly could he bring on the scene that would help us in the best way commemorate his death, burial, and resurrection? I got to looking in my research, thinking about rituals that different religions observe. Different religions have different rituals. And, and I got to looking at some of the other religions of the world and about all the ritualism and the ritualistic observances that they have, the, the, the legalism, if you will. Okay? In Hinduism, the Hindus believe in a pantheon of gods. That means hundreds if not thousands of different gods. And they're not always present in fixed places, so they have to be invoked and they have to be addressed. And so the favorite means for doing that is to pray. And so in nearly every Hindu household, people, and mostly women in the household, worship their gods daily. In their cars, a god named Ganesha is invoked. Shopkeepers keep a picture of the goddess Lakshmi with flowers and and, and what they do, they have all these rituals, festivals, pilgrimages. There are actually 16 different rituals, if you believe some of the reports, that they're supposed to follow that are, come out of a long tradition and that involves some of these Brahmins that are their, their, course, uh, their uh, corresponding preachers, if you will. And, and there are just constant rituals that have to be performed in order to be a good Hindu. Okay? So what about the Buddhists? Well, Buddhist rituals are, uh, Buddhism is a very ritualistic uh, worship, um, recitation, chanting, making offerings to uh, little idols that are set up. What about, what about Islam? What about Islam? Well, the five pillars of Islam require that, that certain duties be performed. Uh, they have to confess there is no God but Allah and Muhammad is his prophet. They have to do a ritual prayer five times a day facing a certain way. They have, to, um, uh, they have to fast during the month of Ramadan. Uh, they, have to, um, uh, they have to one time in their lives at least make a pilgrimage to, to Mecca, the holy city. So what could Jesus come up with that could possibly rival all these other denominations, all these other religious rituals? What could he possibly, surely it would be something with great pomp and circumstance. Surely it would be something elaborate and ritualistic that would, uh, uh, that would impress and wow the people looking at it. Surely it would be something like that. The truth is, absolutely not. What Jesus instituted as the memorial service one of the most precious services the church will ever engage in is simple and direct and something that even a child can understand. And that's what we've just read about here, what we call the Lord's Supper, what we did two or three weeks ago. Simple. It's not a complicated matter. So let's talk about it here. Okay, the setting. Look at the setting here of this of this. Of this uh, communion service. It was conducted at the end 
of the traditional Passover meal. On the first day of the feast of the unleavened bread, the week, the holy week for them, Passover is the commemoration of the deliverance of the firstborn of Israel from the death angel. You go back to Exodus chapter 12 and you'll read about what all had to be done. There was a, a lamb had to be taken from the flock and examined to make sure it was without blemish and without spot. And then that lamb had to be kept separate for, a, I believe it was a 14-day period. And they had to watch it. They had to keep tabs on it to make sure it was proper. And then they would take that lamb and they would sacrifice that lamb. And then what, they, what was left of the lamb, the, the meat of the lamb would be roasted in fire. They wouldn't cut it up. They would roast it whole and they would consume it in one night. But the most important part of that ceremony, the most important part of the Passover was they, they took that blood and, they, and this is the first Passover uh, is, is the one that was commemorated from then on. The first Passover when God said, I'm sending the death angel out and I'm going to destroy, I'm going to take the life of the firstborn of everyone in Egypt. But you take the blood of that lamb and you, you put it on the doorposts and over the top of the door, on the sides and the top. And he says something so important that, that we don't need to ever forget. He says, when I see the blood... I will pass over you. My goodness, what do you think that Passover was pointing us to? I don't think I need an answer to that. It's clear in hindsight for us on this side of the cross that that Passover lamb was pointing us toward the sacrifice of the perfect lamb, the Lord Jesus Christ. When I see the blood, I will pass over you. You know, it wasn't how good they had been living it wasn't how righteous they had been it wasn't how uh, faithful to the temple or at that time it wasn't the temple it was uh, strictly uh, uh, family worship really and uh, it wasn't how faithful to give to the priest or to the Levites that they had been what it was was whether the blood was there or not you know that's still the same thing today I'm so thankful it's that way because I'm going to tell you beloved if, if he said, when I see the blood and then examine your life and see if you're good enough, I'll pass over you. If he said that, you can count old Chris out. You can count old Chris as, as being destined for hell <laughs> because, beloved, I'll tell you, there's no way my good works could ever get me anywhere except to a, a hell created for the devil and his angels. But you see, he didn't say that. He said, when I see the blood, I will pass over you. So what a proper time. What a, what a perfect setting for the Lord to institute this new service, this new commemoration. And I want you to notice something else about it. It was conducted in an intimate setting with his closest disciples in an upper room in Jerusalem. If you look back just a page in my Bible to the 12th chapter, I mean the, the 14th chapter in the 12th verse, uh, they asked him in the 12th verse, where do you want us to go and prepare the Passover? And he, he told them, he said, you go, you'll meet a man bearing a pitcher, and, and, and you just tell him that the master needs a place to celebrate the Passover, and he'll show you in verse 15 a large upper room furnished and prepared. And he said, there, make ready for us. And it says they went and did that, and it, notice in verse 17, in the evening he cometh with the twelve. He cometh with the twelve. Notice that this communion service was not celebrated with the entire world. The Sermon on the Mount was to everybody. The Sermon on the Mount was to anybody within earshot. But in the communion service, 
when he instituted this New Testament worship service that's part of our services today, it was an intimate service. It was for those his disciples who understood uh, or were going to understand what exactly it was that he was going to do for them. Today, beloved, the communion service is an intimate service for the local assembly of called out, baptized believers and others of like faith and order and practice. We'll talk about that in a minute. It's, it's, it was done without flourish. They, you know, there was a time when he came into Jerusalem and they waved palm branches and, and said, Blessed is he that cometh in the name of the Lord. There was like trumpets and, and all kinds of fanfare. But not in this case. There was no flourish or fanfare. It was just a sweet, reverent little service reflective of what he was about to do for them. And I want you to notice also how deliberate and careful he was. Notice verse 22. We've already read, As they did eat, Jesus took bread, he blessed it, he broke it, and he gave it to them and said, Take, eat. This is my body. Same thing with the cup. Very, very orderly, very deliberate. You know, there's a place in church for laughter. There's a place in church for having fun and fellowship. There's a place in church. You know, I, I've said this before. Uh, people, um, we, we get, some, some of us get really happy <laughs> in church. I do. And I get excited in church. And I asked Brother Sam Bryant one time, I said, Brother Sam, have you ever heard of Pentecostal Primitive Baptist? <laughs> Sometimes I think that's where we are occasionally. You know, we've had times when, when people would shout, Amen. And there's a place, there is a place for all of that. But everything should be done decently and in order, Paul says. And especially the Lord's Supper, especially the communion service. Jesus didn't dance and he didn't shout and he didn't get up and perform some kind of play. He just said, here is what we're doing. Take this, eat, and drink. And something else about this service that I want you to understand, one of the reasons that it's so important that we do this, and it's so important that we, we try to do it as often as, as we can. I want to talk about that in a minute. I'm not going to turn there, but in Luke's account of the Lord's Supper, this is what he quotes Jesus as saying in Luke chapter 22 and verse 15. He says, he said unto them, with desire, I have desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. suffer. Now, now notice that it says in the English, with desire, I have desired. And that kind of sounds funny, right? Well, you know what? It's the same way in the Greek. It's the same, way, it's the same word in the Greek that's repeated. He's with desire, I have desired to eat this with you. You know why he did that? to emphasize how passionate he was about being together with his children, with his people, with his disciples. You notice in that word desire in, in the Greek means a craving, a longing. Jesus was going to the... You know, when I... Have you ever been in a situation where you had something bad coming up in your life? You knew a surgery or a, or a, a, a funeral or a, or a wedding? Anyway, I'm sorry, I shouldn't say that. Just, just kidding, girls, sorry. Uh, but seriously, you've got something major coming up in your life. And you say, leave me alone. I, I don't, I don't want to be around anybody. I, I just want to be by myself. 
That's appropriate. I, I get that. I understand that. It may be times when we need to be by ourselves, just us and the Lord. But listen to what he said. He said, y'all, I've got this. I, they didn't understand it. I've got this suffering, this passion that is about to afflict me. I'm a, he, he knew he was about to go to Gethsemane. He was going to be in Gethsemane, and there the full weight of the understanding, not the weight of sin, as Brother David Crawford made very clear to us. We don't believe that in an atonement in Gethsemane. It didn't begin there. It didn't start there. It was leading up to it, though, and Jesus was beginning to understand even more and more and feel the weight of what was coming. He knew this was coming, and then Calvary was coming. He was going to be spat upon. He was going to be beaten. He was going to be rejected. He was going to be ultimately uh, slain on the cross he knew what was coming he said he said my friends I want to be with you I want to be with you I know there's times when we're not like Jesus we're not perfect like he was that we may feel the need to be apart but I'll tell you beloved there is some great blessings to be in with God's children there's some great blessings to the fellowship of the Lord's people it meant something to the Lord that he was going to Go to Calvary. And this service that he's about to institute meant something to him. Beloved, it ought to mean something to us. So let's look at this service now and the symbolism. The symbolism. Notice he says he takes the bread. He takes the bread and blesses it and breaks it. You know, that's what we do in our, in our service, isn't it? We, we sit here, we usually have two ministers sitting at the, at the table and, and we have the bread in, in some form either as a whole piece or it's unleavened bread. It's, it's, by the way, that's the, that's the only proper ingredient for the Lord's Supper because any other kind of soda crackers or anything else that is not unleavened is, is not showing forth the correct type of the body of the Lord Jesus Christ. The bread that they were eating was the bread that had been used in the Passover. The bread that was used in the Passover was unleavened bread, bread without yeast in it. They did, you know, they, they ate it quickly in that first Passover, and from then on, that's how they did it. But there was a greater reason than that. It wasn't just because they didn't have time for the yeast to rise. It's because the Lord didn't want any yeast in there. Yeast is always, leaven is always a type of sin. In almost every instance, it's a type of sin. And beloved, there was no sin in the body of the Lord Jesus Christ. Don't give me crackers. I read about somebody, some, some denominational church out there years ago that they decided to have Coca-Cola and sandwiches in their communion service. Beloved, if I walk in sometime and there's Coca-Cola and sandwiches here, I may be like Jesus and turn the table over and run out, okay? <laughs> I won't do that, I hope, but I hope I've instructed you better than that. <laughs> I know Brother Mackey would do it. <laughs> he, would, he, would, he would get rid of them, you know, and we'd go back to the proper ingredients. See, there's some symbolism in this. The unleavened bread that Jesus was breaking here was a symbol of the untainted body of the Lord Jesus Christ. He had never committed a sin. He had done all things well. He lived a perfect life. He walked in a perfect way before the Lord. He had perfect fellowship with his Father right up into Calvary. <laughs> That's what the bread symbolizes. And something also that's probably just as important. It symbolizes not only the perfect body of the Lord Jesus Christ, the sinless body, but it symbolizes the broken body of Jesus. Now look, we can talk about 
crucifixion, cross, Easter. You can use whatever term. You can talk about all these things all day long. But we need to think about it. We need to be thinking about what it was that happened to Jesus. First of all, remember he was a man. Yes, he was God. He was fully God. I heard it said that he was so much God that it was as if he were not man at all. And yet he was so much man as if he were not God at all. <laughs> and no, I can't explain it any better than that. But he was fully God. He was fully man. And he had to be because if he were just God inhabiting something that looked like a man, a body that looked like a man, like a cyborg or something, he, would, he couldn't have suffered for us. God can't suffer. God could atone, but he couldn't suffer. Man could suffer, but he couldn't atone. It took God becoming man in order to suffer and atone for our sins. So understand that everything you read about in here happened. And it happened to him. And it happened to him who knew no sin. You may be treated unfairly sometime in your life. I was pulled over one time when I wasn't speeding, okay? I was. I was pulled over. I wasn't speeding. I got a warning on that, that time, Bob. I didn't get an actual ticket. But, but you know, it wasn't fair because I wasn't speeding. But you know what? As soon as the trooper was out of sight, pew, I took off. See, I had slowed down because I saw the trooper up there, and he didn't see me. He actually thought I was a different. But, you see, I was guilty. I just wasn't guilty that time. So you say, well, I've been treated unfairly. Well, maybe you have in this instance, but don't you deserve it for something else? See, Jesus didn't deserve it for something else, though. Jesus was perfect. Jesus was, I want, I want you to think about, think about someone in your life or someone you've known. Maybe they've died already. Think about one person in your life who is the sweetest, dearest, most precious godliest person you know i'm thinking of of one in my life right now think about that person okay now i want you to think about the most vile criminal you've ever read about i was see i saw a little uh, um i didn't watch much of it i watched part of a little documentary about um i can't i think his name was john wayne gacy he was a, he was a serial killer who lured young boys uh, to their death by wearing a clown suit. And I was thinking how, and he never, he was never repentant. Although he was finally executed, never repentant. What a vile human being. What a, what a, what a wicked person, okay? Now I want you to imagine that you are seated in the death chamber as, as that person, that John Wayne Gacy is about to be strapped to the electric chair. I want you to think about it. And you're thinking to yourself, no doubt, man, this is justice. This is right. And then, then I want you to imagine that as they're, as they're about to lead him in, to strap him in, instead, this person, this is the most godly, precious, faithful, church-going, Christ-believing person you know. Instead of John Wayne Gacy, they lead that person in. I'm thinking of my grandmother McCool right now thinking about how sweet she was and precious all of her life. So, so in my mind, you got John Wayne Gacy here in the electric chair, and then you got my grandmother McCool. And instead of him, the governor says, I pardon you, and I'm going to put Ms. McCool to death. 
and they strap her in that electric chair. What would you, you know, how, how, how anathema is that to us? How horrible is that to consider? Well, I want to tell you something. As much as I love my grandmother, as sweet and precious as she was, as, as little sin as I ever saw in her life, she can't hold a candle to the Lord Jesus Christ. She can't touch him in holiness. She was a vile sinner in her own nature. She was not born perfect and she did not live a perfect life. And as sweet and kind and precious as she was and as terrible as that would be and offensive as that would be to my sense of justice for her to take the place of a man like John Wayne Gacy, that's exactly what the Lord Jesus Christ did. He took the place of you and I and every single one of his children who share the same nature with a serial killer like him or with a man like Hitler. You say, well, I'd never be like Hitler. Only by the grace of God because you've got the Hitler nature in you. We've all got the nature of sin. We are dead in our trespasses and our sins. The things that we think of, you know, you say, well, I've never done, I've never done this. Well, what have you thought about <laughs> Say, I've never, uh, I've never committed adultery. Jesus said, if you look on a woman to lust after her in your heart, you've committed it in your heart. See, the heart of man is desperately wicked, Jeremiah says. And so when, when you think about what's happening here, you think about the broken body of the Lord Jesus Christ, understand it was a perfect body. He had lived a perfect life. And He is taking your place and my place and somebody even more vile than that. There was a thief on a cross that wasn't just a pickpocket, okay? He was a robber. He was a violent thief. He was a malefactor. And right there at the end of his life, he says, Lord, remember me. Not because he got smart all of a sudden, because he'd been casting the same mocking and spitting in his face as the other thief. But because Jesus loved him and the Spirit quickened him, he said, you'll be with me in paradise. Doesn't that just offend our sensibilities of justice? But let me tell you, beloved, praise God, it satisfied the justice of the Lord God Almighty. Somebody had to pay for sin. And either you and I will pay on it for eternity or Jesus had to pay it at the cross. Read sometime, and we're going to get to it in the book of Mark, how that they buffeted him. They scourged him. You know what it meant in, the, in Roman times to scourge? I looked that up also. The Roman scourging, the, the, the design of that process, it was, it was a whip. And they would take a whip that, that had leather thongs on it, and they would put pieces of metal in those thongs and tie knots and, and, and then they would be attached at different intervals and, and the scourge would, would be laid upon him and it would rip the skin from his body as they began to scourge him. Before they crucified anybody, they scourged them to weaken them. Well, they scourged Jesus. <laughs> they scourged Jesus. And, and, and over in, you know, the, the amazing thing about that was that uh, that we've already been told Jesus, this was not something new. It had been foretold from ancient times. Psalm 129 and verse 3 says, The plowers plowed upon my back, in a reference to this. Over in Isaiah, 
which is where I want to go. Isaiah chapter 50 and verse 6. Listen to this. Isaiah 50 and verse 6. I gave my back to the smiters and my cheeks to them that plucked off the hair. They plucked his beard out. I've told you this before. Think about it. I used to, I had a beard every so often when I was coming up, and I'd when I would read this, I'd pull on it. I, I wasn't man enough to pull my own beard out, you know. I, I would pull on it a little bit, and it would hurt so bad I'd just quit. Sherry likes to pluck my eyebrows. So I tell you, that's one of the most, that's like a torture, I tell you. That's, I can't stand it. I, you know, I, anyway, that's another story. But, uh, but, uh, but think about plucking out the beard. If You men that have facial hair, think about if somebody came up and just started plucking out one by one or grabbing a handful of your beard and plucking it out. Think about how raw your face would be, the bleeding that would occur. He says, I gave my back to the smiters. He did this willingly, beloved. He gave his cheeks to them that plucked off the hair. I hid not my face from shame and spitting. You see, they, they took a crown of thorns. And I, I went out to California some time back and preached in a, in a little place um, called Holtville, where that little church that recently closed was. And as I was leaving, one of the ladies in the church said, there's a place out here called, the, I forget the name of the, of the uh, state park, but it has what they call the crown of thorns bush. And, and he said, it's, it, it grows here and they grow out in, uh, in Israel. And, and he said, go by there. And, look, and I went by there and I got a, I got a branch off of that. And we're not talking about stickers. We're not talking about briars. We're not talking about getting your hand cut up when you go in there trying to pick blackberries. Those thorns, I've still got some at the house. Remind me if you come by sometime, I'll show them to you. Those thorns stick out like that. Those were thorns. Somebody took the time to plait that crown of thorns. Think about how hard it would be to avoid sticking yourself. They hated him so much. They didn't do that to everyone they crucified. But he'd been calling himself a king, so they hated him so much that they took the time to weave this crown of thorns. Probably stuck themselves in the process, but it was worth it to them. They hated him so much, and they took that crown and mashed it down upon his head. You know, you see some of the pictures of it sitting kind of nice and like a halo on top of his head. That's not the way it was, beloved. They took that crown, and they mashed it down into his scalp. And he was bleeding. He was... He was uh, ravaged. His face was ravaged. In fact, Isaiah chapter 52 and, uh, and verse 14 tells us, As many were astonished at thee, his visage was so marred more than any man, and his form more than the sons of men. Astonished means stunned. Now I know, I see these pretty pictures of Jesus on the cross. He's so handsome, you know, he almost looks peaceful and serene. I want to tell you, beloved, if you had seen Jesus on the cross, it would have been hard for you to look at him. It would have been hard for you to look at him. I've seen some pretty bad scenes in my life as a prosecutor. I know Brother Bob has had the same experience as a police officer. Brother Glendon is a first responder. Some others of you may have seen some bad You've never seen anything like Jesus on the cross. It says the people, that word astonished there means stunned. They were shocked. If you looked at him, you would be stunned. It's not a sight you would. I'm convinced that's one reason that the Lord turned out the lights. For three hours there, the lights were off. I, I don't, the sun went dark. I don't believe he intended for us to, to, to ogle his son and to see him hanging there 
it was bad enough as it was. His visage was so marred more than any man. You couldn't recognize him as a man. And you know, in Isaiah 53, in verse 4, it says, Surely he hath borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we did esteem him stricken, smitten of God, and afflicted. But look at this. He was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement of our peace was upon him, and with his stripes we are healed. Wow. You want to know who crucified Jesus? You crucified Jesus. I crucified Jesus because there's no other way that we could be with him. You want to know how much God hates sin? You want to know exactly how much he hates? Think about if one of your children were about to be punished for something and it was up to you to punish them. And you say, okay, I'm sorry, son, I'm going to have to kill you. Wouldn't you be tempted to say, wait a minute now, hang on. We're not, let's rethink this. <laughs> let's rethink this. I, I don't want to put my son to death. I don't want to put my child to death. I think I, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna to slack off. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to kind of wink at this sin and let it go. You know how much God hates sin and how much he loves you? He hates sin so much that he would not waive the penalty even when his son was being marched up to Calvary. And he loves you so much that he turned his back on his son as he was hanging there. Wow. Wow. The broken body of the Lord Jesus Christ. And then he took the cup. And it says, when he had given thanks, he gave it to them and they all drank of it. I love how the Lord knows what the problems are going to be one day. You know, in a certain church, for many, many years, the practice was that only the priest would drink of the wine, that the congregation didn't get to partake of it. It partly had to do with the fact that they believed that, their, that the blood actually became wine, uh, the, the, the wine actually became the blood of Jesus, and they couldn't risk spilling it. <laughs> but I'll tell you, beloved, notice what happened here. They all drank of it. Preachers don't just stand up here and do this and partake of it. Everybody in the congregation partakes of this. <clears throat> and, it's, and this wine, this cup, symbolizes the pure blood of Christ. And let me tell you something, beloved. It is wine. It is wine. I'm not going to spend too much time on it. Sometime we'll talk about it if you have questions about it. But notice he calls it in one place the fruit of the vine. The fruit of the vine, okay? Now, some say you've got to read wine into that. Some say you've got to read wine. Well, let me tell you something. You've got to read grape juice into it, too. <laughs> it doesn't say grape juice. It, doesn't, it says the fruit of the vine. And so what we do is we look back and see what were they using in that day. Without getting into too much detail, just understand that they used wine in the, Lord, in the Passover meal. It was done at Passover. The ingredients were fermented wine, and there's a reason for that, because the wine that has been fermented, it's the, what causes the, the, um, the, the, the grape juice to become uh, alcoholic or have alcohol in it is the fermentation that occurs where the yeast is, being, is eating up 
up the, the sugar, and ultimately it gets all the yeast out. Now, there's no, uh, let me say this, none of our wine is perfect like the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ, but that's the process and that's the purpose. And the Jews would have understood this passage. I mean, think about it. If all you ever drank was milk and, 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 and somebody said, well, take your beverage and drink it, you wouldn't have to be told, oh, it's milk, <laughs> because that's all you ever drank, you see. Well, all the Jews ever drank, ever used in the Passover service was wine, fermented wine. And the fermentation, as I said, that the fact that the yeast has been worked out of it, just like in the bread, it shows us that the blood of Jesus Christ is pure. You know, interestingly enough, uh, you notice that the Lord never calls it a grape juice press. It's always a wine press, isn't it, Brother Mac? <laughs> it's, it's a wine press. You know why? Because in that day, there was no effective way to preserve grape juice. There was no effective way to keep it. It had to be fermented in order for it to, uh, in order for it to uh, be preserved. And the fermentation process begins as soon as the grape is plucked from the vine. What's the symbolism here? You don't have to turn there, but sometime, maybe this afternoon, if you get a chance, make a note of this. Numbers chapter 28. Numbers chapter 28, the first eight verses tell us about the twice daily sacrifices that, that, that the Jews were required to perform. They were to sacrifice a lamb in the morning and a lamb in the evening, and they were to take the strong wine and pour it out on the altar twice a day. Now what is it that they're doing? They are showing forth twice a day Every day, the figure of the absolute necessity of the shed blood, the powerful shed blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. This lamb's blood plus the strong, wasn't just any wine, strong wine had to be poured out on the altar. And they were, you know, you think, well, was those sacrifices atoning for sin? Absolutely not. Hebrews tells us that the blood of bulls and goats can't put away sin. But you know what they can do? They can point us to the one who will put it away. And that's what they were doing here. They would pour that wine out twice a day, every day. And if they had just been paying attention, if they just had the right mindset, they could see that shed blood, the blood of that little lamb, and the, the wine, the strong wine that was poured out was pointing them to the powerful blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. Beloved, I've heard it said that redemption is free, and it is, but it's not cheap. It's not cheap. It required the strongest sacrifice, the strongest, the most expensive price ever paid for anything in, this, in the history of the universe. In 1 Peter chapter 1 and verse 18, he says, For as much as ye know that ye were not redeemed with corruptible things as silver and gold from your vain conversation received by tradition from your fathers. In other words, none of these traditions that you've been engaging in, none of these sacrifices you've been doing is ever going to be sufficient to put away any of your sins, none of your corruptible things, none of your money, none of your works, none of, your, uh, none of the things you give to the church and beloved he tells us in Isaiah chapter 64 that our righteousness is even every good work that you and I have ever done are as filthy rags you want to take your works to God and try to lay them upon an altar you ever burned a pile of filthy rags you ever smelled the smell of a pile of filthy rags that's what God smells when you try to sacrifice your works on the altar of his grace beloved it's not by works the works that we do even the good things that we do are tainted by the sin of Adam them. They're as filthy rags. We're not redeemed by the corruptible things. But notice how we are redeemed. Verse 19, with the precious blood of Christ. 
as of a lamb without blemish and without spot, who verily was foreordained before the foundation of the world, but was manifest in these last times for you. Beloved, all of these sacrifices throughout all of time have done nothing more than point us to the ultimate sacrifice of the Lord Jesus Christ. Sometimes you hear people say, well, one drop of his blood was sufficient. Love it, it wasn't. Let me tell you. If one drop had been sufficient, he'd have pricked his finger, and that's all that would have been required. It didn't require one drop of his blood. It required all of his blood. It required his death on the cross. Listen, the scourging was horrible. The crown of thorns was painful. The spitting was embarrassing. All these things plucking out his beard were terrible. But even that did not atone for your sins. You know what atoned for your sins? It was the spilling of the precious blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. He had to die for your sins and for mine. And then... I want you to notice as we bring this to a close, we're just going to mention it briefly. Jesus did something as this service was closed out. Now, I don't know. I don't think the Bible is clear. And if the Bible's not clear, it means we don't have to know. Okay? If the Bible's not, the Bible doesn't tell us something, it's something we don't need to know. I don't know if, if he got down and washed his disciples' feet before or right after the communion service. We always do it after, and that's, that's fine. But we know that it tells us in John chapter 13 that after they had observed the Passover meal in verse 2, supper being ended, it says in verse 3, Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands and that he was come from God and went to God, he riseth from supper and laid aside his garments and took a towel and girded himself. I've got this vision, Brother Mackey, Brother, Brother John Morgan preached to us about angels the other day. I got this vision of these legions of angels that he had access to, standing by the throne of God, watching this happen. And don't you know that they're watching what's innate? They know, they've been told what's coming. They don't know everything, but I believe they knew this. And they watch it down there and say, what is he doing? This is our captain. This is, a, this is our leader. This is, our, this, is, this is very God. This is God the Son, the second person of the Godhead. He's laying aside his cloak and he's girding himself with a towel. What is he doing? He's getting down on his knees. They're punching each other. Say, what? Look at this. What's happening? We need to go down there and stop this. What, what's up? He's getting down on his feet. This is Peter. Wait a minute. It's almost, I, I can almost hear him saying, Lord, that's Peter. He's going to deny you. He's going to follow you afar off. And then he's going to curse and swear and deny that he even knows you. What are you doing? And you know what he was doing? He was humbling himself to get down on his knees and bathe their feet with his hands, and to dry them with that towel. Why did he do that? He did it because we needed something. We needed one, you know, in the, the only thing on the table in the communion service is the bread and the wine. 
separate, by the way, which symbolizes death. When you separate the blood from the body, there's no life. But at some point after that, or separate from that, he gave us one thing, the one thing, that could keep us focused on how we ought to treat one another. See, at that point, they could still hug his neck. They could still lay their head on his bosom. They could recline with him. They could do him good. They could wash his feet with their tears. But he's about to ascend back to heaven. And he would not be in physical form here. But you know how we serve him now? By serving one another. That's why we do the foot washing service as part of our communion service. Some believe it's part of the service. Some believe it's separate, but a practice that we observe. I don't care how you look at it. You can look at it however you want. But what a precious service it is. You know, I always think of it as a reset, Brother Buddy. If I'm mad at Brother Buddy, you know, he doesn't make me mad very often. But if I'm mad at Brother Buddy, and Brother Buddy comes up to me and says, Brother Chris, I want to wash your feet. It's sure hard for me to stay mad at him. As I see that precious brother there on his knees washing my feet. And as I get down on my knees in front of him washing his feet. It's so hard to stay mad. You've got to try <laughs> to stay mad at somebody in that circumstance. And we don't do it every day. We don't do it throughout the year. We just do it because it reminds us how we ought to be symbolically doing that every day. Okay, let's, let's close this out. <clears throat> I know our time's gone. In 1 Corinthians chapter 11, he tells us that there is a way we can eat and drink unworthily. What does that mean? He says, not discerning the Lord's body. You know, one of the reasons that we observe what we call closed communion, it's not to, it's not to be ugly to people or to keep them out. One of the reasons, though, is that, that we observe communion with our local church and others of the primitive Baptist, who have been baptized into a, a primitive Baptist church that we're in fellowship with is because we don't want you to take of this service without understanding what it is that you're doing. He says that's an unworthy way to do it. Now, he didn't say you're unworthy or I'm unworthy because we are. If he said that, we'd none of us ever be, required, ever be able to take it because we're all unworthy. We've been made worthy by the blood of Christ. But he said in an unworthy manner, unworthily, that's, that describes the action and not the person. So when the time comes, we should discern what we're doing. We should understand. That's one reason I'm preaching to you this morning. We need to know what it is that we're doing and what it is that is our only and complete salvation. Now, how often should we do it? Luke 22, in his uh, description of this service, he says, This do in remembrance of me. Well, Brother Chris, do we do it once a year, twice a year, once a quarter? Well, how do we do it? Paul says, as often as you do it. You know what that means? We have some say-so in it. I'm going to tell you, I think we ought to do it more than once a year. We, you know, one time we did it back-to-back, -back, two weeks in a row. Wasn't it sweet? We did it once in the last service over there and once in the first service here. Wasn't that sweet? I got some thoughts on that. Maybe we can talk about it and come up with another time or two throughout the year when we can do it. But you see, the eating and drinking symbolizes that we are internalizing the death, burial, and resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. Galatians tells us, I am crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live. Yet not I, but Christ liveth in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by the faith of the Son of God who loved me 
and gave himself for me. You know what Paul says in, back in 1 Corinthians 11, verse 26, he says, As often as you do it, you do show forth the death of the Lord until he comes. That's what we're doing. We're showing forth that our hope is only in the death, burial, and resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. Calvary's coming. He's about to go to Calvary. Calvary is the culmination of his work here on this earth. Calvary is the finished work that he will perform in order to save his people from their sins. When they laid him in the grave on Calvary's dark day, they thought they had won. To make sure they put a stone in place to keep him there. But the stone couldn't keep him there. On that, whatever day it was, it probably wasn't Friday because don't have enough time to get three days and three nights in between Friday and Sunday, do you? But whatever day it was that they laid him in the tomb, they thought that it was done. They thought he was finished. Even his disciples thought he was finished. They said, it's over. They ran in fear. They hid. <laughs> but praise God. They may have laid him in the tomb on a Wednesday or a Thursday or even a Friday. But Sunday's coming. Sunday's coming. And Sunday came. The first day of the week came. And up from the grave he arose with a mighty triumph for his foes. He arose a victor from the dark domain. And he lives forever with the saints to reign. He arose. He arose. Praise God. He arose. We thank you for listening to today's message. For more information, please visit us online at zionpbc.com.